T-minus 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Tower cleared. Here we got a roll program. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Okay, thank you everyone for coming today, uh, April 11th, 2023. Tonight we have um, honored guest Gary Osborne and uh, Jim Pendington. And um, uh, one of our founders, uh, Grant Cameron, will be hosting for us tonight. And I will let the gentleman take over. Thank you very much. Grant? Oh, you want me to take? Okay. Uh, Good evening. (laughs) Thank you for allowing me to uh, have this honored guest tonight. our guest tonight, our main guest is uh, Jim Peniston. We'll start with him, and then we're going to move to Gary Osborne, who um, has uh, helped Jim unravel a mystery that has started in 1980 uh, uh, at in uh, Forest Mystery. Um, I got interested in this case because of uh, two reasons. One, and and all the, this is a group from Manitoba, so most people in Manitoba will know about the Steve Mikula case. That happened in Falcon Lake in uh, May of 1967, and um, that was the case where um, Mikulak was out prospecting. A UFO landed at a rock about 50 feet from him, and he wandered over, and uh, he actually, the door opened up, and he was t- trying to talk inside. He thought it was the Americans uh, running some sort of secret program or whatever. He ended up getting burnt, and I actually have a piece of the rock where I'm one of 100 people that have actually been to the site. You have to go in by horseback. And um, the, the um, we, when we were there, we were picking up pieces of the rock. And I figured like, you know, the, the, the UFO may have actually, the foot may have actually been sitting right on this rock because it was sort of shattering. So that's important because um, everybody always, you'll hear now in the UFO community, if you get near a UFO, it's going to fry your brain. It's going to injure you or whatever. Well, Jim Penniston, uh, his claim to fame is that he actually touched the craft and he was actually around the craft for quite a few minutes. And so we're going to get into this story about what happened in 1980. And the the other reason that I was interested in this story is because Jim told the story that when he touched the craft, uh, he got this binary code message. And I have have had a message to myself. This happened in February 26, 2012. And I call it like a download experience where something comes into your head and you know it's absolutely for real. Uh, you don't know where it's coming from. Um, and so I was always interested in downloads. I actually wrote a book called Inspired, The Paranormal World of Creativity, where I looked at people who have downloads and people who, who get material. 
So I was very interested in Jim's message. I've always been interested in, in, in what they were trying to tell him. And that's where Gary Osborne comes in. And Gary is sort of the guy who does all the, the mathematics and deep work and uh, has sort of, uh, sort of tried to unravel this. And I think he's actually got a couple of books. I don't know if they're out yet, but uh, Jim Penniston's book, uh, his first one was The Encounter at Rendlesham Forest that was written with, uh, I think with John Burroughs and with uh, Nick Pope, correct? That's, that's, well, Nick wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and, and then the book that you did, which is kind of a weird paranormal story, uh, that you, you have the Rendlesham Enigma, which I, I got, you signed for me when we were in, in Laughlin. And it's a book that is just huge. It's like 700 and some pages. And I have lost the book. I've been looking for it for months. And I always would quote people between six pages to 610. If you ever get, if you get the book and I suggest you get this book because it has everything. Like Jim tried to put everything in there, like answer all the questions, be very detailed about how this all worked. I would always quote people. Now, read. now remember though that Gary wrote all the uh, chapter endnotes. He wrote the epilogue. Yep. Gary's, Gary is key to this whole thing. I mean, his, if it wasn't for him researching yeah. everything, I mean, from witness statements to that, it wouldn't be the book it is. I'll tell you that yep. right now. Yeah. Yeah. And but it is a very detailed book in terms of if you want to know the real Reynolds from Forest story and the details, mm -hmm. it's 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 all there. And that's why it was so strange. You're sort of sort of like you're losing you misplaced your 55 inch color TV. It's like, how could I misplace a book like that? I only you know, like it's like just weird that it's it's uh it's there. And that's the Reynolds from Enigma. And and I I've 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 had that book for years and I've I've, I've gone through it numerous times. And every time I, I want something authoritative because that's one of the things that people will say there, there's different versions of the, the Reynoldson story there's there's all sorts of books that have been written and I figured this is the best book there is in terms of detail and accuracy and so welcome Jim and a thank you for uh, coming to our group here in Winnipeg and talking to us about uh, what is uh, I guess the the Brits call it there the Roswell case of, of, of the UK it's the the biggest story that ever happened there and you were probably the main witness or one of the main witnesses that was involved so maybe you can for people who aren't familiar with what happened you can sort of set the 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 story as to what actually happened there and why this is so important well uh it's i'll tell you just a little bit about the two bases they're twin bases they're separated like three miles apart uh RF woodbridge RAF uh bentwaters and between them they had a total population of maybe 10,000 U.S. servicemen and civilians. Uh, we had the largest tactical fighter wing in the United States Air Force at the time. Now, we've had the largest tactical fighter wing ever, okay? They haven't. It was the biggest. Uh, even today, it's, there's none that big. Uh, and uh, I was working as a flight sergeant over on Woodbridge Base that night, and uh, uh, I was uh, dispatched to the East Gate. I met up with a couple of patrolmen. I took their uh, information down, and they were saying that it landed in the, in the forest, an object. And I, I, it was, it looked like something on fire. So I called it into on the direct line to CSC uh, landline. And uh, uh, at the time, we had like a status of forces agreement there. You know, you can go off base unless there's an emergency situation existed. And anyway, uh, I got permission from the base commander, Conrad, to uh, uh, form a team and uh, go off base. I did that. We encountered an object in the uh, uh, just inside the woods that was uh, 
uh, of unknown origin. Uh, and so initially it was the aircraft crash we were looking at. I changed my uh, security response option to a helping hand situation, which meant a possible hostile threat, you know, with the base. And that is uh, when we uh, started, uh, I started to go and investigate the actual craft itself. I walked around it a few times. I checked it for all the stuff it's supposed to have, you know, if it flew, uh, like uh, Arion's uh, intakes, exhaust, uh, uh, crew compartments, uh, flaps. I mean, it didn't have none of that stuff. It was completely uh, triangular. It was uh, smooth to touch. Uh, it was some type of metal. I don't know what kind, uh, but it was some type of metal. And uh, uh, walking around it, uh, I did uh, go ahead and uh, I think the second time around is the discovery of uh, glyphs that were on the side of the craft. I looked at the, the glyphs and um, which was completely odd. They looked, uh, I, even at the time, I said they looked more like pictorials, like Egyptian or something like that. And uh, so I went, walked around then again, kept notes. Uh, the radios weren't working. Uh, I'm leaving out a lot about the physical aspect of it. The, the, the uh, you know, the bubble, the, 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 the area of influence around it. I'm leaving all that stuff out just for brevity purposes here. Um, then when I came back around, I was running my hand across the craft, uh, which was warm to touch, but um, uh, I later found out that's probably because of radiation, they said, beta radiation, which don't last very long. And uh, I went from the smoothness of the fabric and I touched the, you know, the row of glyphs and it was like touching sandpaper. And there was a, larger one that was on top, uh, which was a triangle with three little other circles around this big circle. And uh, when I touched that, that's, that's when I had a, a brilliant, and I'll use the word light because it was not light and I'll tell you why. Light, it was so bright, I, I couldn't see when I, was, when I put my hand on it. And in the process, I was seeing flashes of ones and zeros. And I started getting my wits about me and I just lifted my hand off and it stopped completely. And uh, I immediately had my night vision. So every, everybody knows if you are blinded by brilliant white light, you would not have no night vision. So uh, I knew it wasn't a light, but it was some type of uh, technology that I didn't understand uh, amongst other things that I didn't understand as technology too. Uh, one of the strangest things besides that uh, situation was that it was set ground, it was set above the ground, but it wasn't with landing gear. It was like with light, light beam. There's three of them. And these light beams actually made impressions in the ground. So that technology is pretty incredible too. Um, uh, the, the craft started get more active uh, from a, a pink color, a dark color. It, it started getting uh, little uh, globular pieces of light start running through it. I thought I might have activated something in the craft uh, because I touched it and with that light thing. And uh, so I backed off, got down on the ground and 
it, it, it's momentarily went a little bit back through the trees, then it went up to the canopy of the uh, forest, made a slight turn, and uh, it was gone in the blink of eye, but it wasn't like it disappeared. It was just because of speed. Um, uh, the other patrolman that was with me, uh, I heard him then, and he says, there it is, and, there, and he took off, but we were in a black forest, so it's really dark now, and I don't know what he see. <laughs> okay, I have no idea, because I couldn't see it any farther take off after it was all, you know, off the top of me, and so I chased him because of the two-person concept, the team concept. I didn't want to get separated from. So I chased him, went over a couple of fences, went through some fields, went to uh, past some farmer houses. And finally he stopped and I was, I was pretty relieved he did that because I was exhausted. Um, and I said, what, what are you chasing? And he points over and I, he said, look down my arm. He said, look down my arm and you'll see it over there. I said, see, see what now? Because this, you know, there's nothing in the sky. And I looked down his arm and I said, and it's in a completely different direction over toward the uh, North Sea. And I said, that's a lighthouse. And that's how that lighthouse went in his statement. Okay. Um, then I momentarily were talking a little bit. And I looked up over to Cape Green area there, which is part of Rendlesham Forest. And there was the craft right above the forest again. But this time, it didn't take off at high speed. It took off at a very low speed. In my estimate, uh, being on the ground, and believe me, it's only an estimate, but I think it was so slow, it was maybe three or 400 miles an hour. And uh, it took a little while for it to go back over the, to, uh, to the east, over the sea. And that is the Reynolds Force incident. And there's a lot more to it, but I really put it all encapsulated it down into the actual event. Now there are three nights, right? This is the first night of the of the events, and there's more than one object, right? Not as far as I know. All I know is that the first first night, the following morning, the morning of that, the base commander Colonel Conrad ordered uh, Sergeant Nevels from Disaster Preparedness to go out and investigate that, along with Lieutenant England. They went out sometime around noon, and they actually uh, were checking the site for radiation, things like that, and. Uh, looking for physical evidence. And they, they did an investigation. That investigation lasted until about seven that night. And they came back in and Colonel Conrad was at a party at Woodbridge uh, at the old club. And they went in and they seen uh, Colonel Conrad then. And uh, Conrad asked him, he says, well, do you think it warrants further investigation? And he says, absolutely. So the whole thing that they were out there for was because of the first night, you know, first night, you know, early morning of the first contact. And um, so they went back out there and that's when uh, Colonel Halt went with them. And uh, that they, uh, as far as Monroe Neville said to me, and I'm going to go by him, uh, they never seen no object directly over them. They seen one over Monroe, uh, uh, said over by the storage area. Uh, and then he said there was uh, at least three that were up in the sky. They were seeing lights in the sky at that time, but they were moving. And uh, so that that ran from the <coughs> first day or the first. So I went out there just before midnight. Then it went into the 
next day, Monroe and Evans went back out there to the, up to the evening. And then that investigation on the second time out there ran into the third morning. So that's the exact time schedule. Okay. Um, so, so go through, what, what, what did you think? Like when you, when you came back to the, the base, you, you filed a report and maybe get into the thing where the met, where the, the, the binary code thing comes from and, and how that all started. Oh, okay. Well, that morning, I mean, I was going to write a complete incident complaint report. You know, that's a long version, you know, it can be pages, uh, of, you know, of a situation that happens. The blotter entry is a short entry. It's just, uh, it's more chronological. And so I went, when I went to CSC, I was talking to Sergeant Coffey. I said, I'm already, I need to write that 1569 up. And he says, don't worry about it. He said, I already wrote it. I said, how can you write it? And he says, well, we heard everything you said on the radio. I see, I couldn't receive them, but they heard me. And I went, oh, so I, I read the 1569. I said, that looks good to me. And uh, we uh, left it like that. And uh, uh, so uh, we went back out there and because uh, Burroughs wanted to look at, for some reason, go back out there. I don't know why. I mean, the first, <laughs> the first, the morning was enough for me. I mean, I didn't have to go back out. And uh, anyway, we, uh, he looked at some stuff. He actually the one that found the uh, impressions in the ground. Like he was shocked that they were there. I don't know why. Uh, then uh, I went home. Uh, the course of the day went by, and then I'm trying to sleep that night, and I couldn't sleep. Uh, I just kept getting these flashes and stuff of, of these ones and zeros, and uh, I, I I was pretty disturbed. It must have been around midnight or something that day, and. Uh, so I get up, I make a pot of coffee because I'm not going to sleep anyway. And so I'm sitting there at the table, the kitchen table, and I'm looking, I get my notebook and I'm looking at, um, you know, the stuff I drew in there and the notes and things like that. And, uh, then I, uh, I, you know, I closed my eyes. I could, I could see these ones zeros very clearly. And I said, you know, I think I can write that stuff down. And uh, I, th I thought I was losing it, to be honest with you. I thought I would have to, you know, go to the base hospital. And I was, you know, it's because of the trauma of the incident. That was my guess at the time. And uh, anyway, uh, the only paper I had was that notebook I had right there. So I flipped to the back and I did through that mind's eye thing, closed my eyes, and I started writing. And uh, I just, the neat thing is, after I wrote a couple lines, um, out, I felt better. And so I was compelled to write, to continue writing. So I did that for uh, about 16 pages of it. And uh, then it, just as fast as it started, the, it stopped. And I felt great. I felt like I dodged a bullet and I wouldn't have to go to the hospital. I felt fine. And I was tired despite the coffee I was drinking hmm. uh, and went to bed and I woke up the next morning and I said, I, I, I'm going to be all right, you know, and, but I, there's no way I was going to show them that manic 
stuff that I wrote down. I mean, <laughs> that was just craziness to me, you know. You know, how do you explain that? How would you explain something? I went and uh, had a encounter with a craft of unknown origin that night. I uh, was compelled to write ones and zeros down. I wrote down like 16 pages, and then I just stopped. And I felt great. You couldn't tell anybody that, and uh, uh, and I wasn't going to either. And uh, so that's how the binary uh, got put away and rediscovered through uh, actually John Burroughs and uh, Linda Moulton Howell. And that was years later, right? Yeah, that was at a film shoot for Ancient Aliens in 2010. Wow. Yeah. And that was just by accident because John had asked me about a date or something like that in the notebook. And because I wrote everything down, you know, for that week or two week period. And uh, I was looking for the date and I went too far in the back. And, the, you know, of course, there's the ones and zeros and all that. Everybody goes, what's that? And I went, hey, what difference does it make 30 years later? You know, so yeah, you know, I said, well, that's just a breakdown there, uh, you know. And then how she thought, you know, she's like a mad dog with fresh meat. She comes over, she goes, that's binary code. I said, oh, really? I said, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, I got some, I got pages of it. And they were just fascinated by it. And they said, well, how did it happen? I told them. And they says, well, have you ever had it analyzed? I said, no, it's, uh, it's, it's probably a half hour of madness, you know? And uh, anyway, long story short, the producers and that, I, I called them up and Hall was on me about, I mean, called me two or three times a day, all right? It was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was crazy. And so I was sort of forced into doing it, but I wasn't gonna let her look at it. I didn't want to really. So I uh, gave the producer from uh, Ancient Aliens, uh, um, uh, Prometheus Entertainment, uh, Kim, uh, oh, I can't remember Kim's last name now. And um, anyway, I gave it to her and, and a few days later, she, uh, she got back to me and she, we, did a, we did a real rude Skype. There wasn't Skype, but it was like really rudimentary. And uh, we, uh, she went through it, she says, there's a message here. I said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I, that's really nice words. Those are not the words I use. And I said, yeah. And I said, no way. And that's when uh, they uh, had it deciphered. And, you know, it had the uh, coordinates. It has uh, uh, some, uh, uh, one of the coordinates was actually, it had seven. It was actually only six. But the seventh one was really the first one done twice on there. And so... I said, well, okay, I don't really believe uh, ancient aliens 100%. You know, can you imagine that? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And so I sent like four or five, I can't remember what it was, five, six pages, I can't remember, to uh, uh, Howell. Because she said she had connections. And she probably did. And she said she had somebody in Australia and she had somebody in North Carolina or South Carolina. And they could decipher. I said, okay. So I, 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 sent them over to her, you know, electronically. And it was like three or four days later, she uh, calls me and she's like, uh, just giddy. I said, what, what's going on? She says, there's a, there's a message in that code. I said, okay, so what does it say? And it, it was verbatim from what ancient aliens did. I went, damn, 
how, how in the hell does it, how in the hell can that be? You know? So, you know, I was still, I was in disbelief, the whole code system uh, with the whole thing with it from 2010 on until, I mean, and that's one of the reasons I got a hold of Gary because uh, I had a, we had a friend of ours, a mutual friend, I didn't know Gary, but a mutual friend of ours says, uh, because I was having dreams about 23 and a half, 23 and a half, 23 and a half, which is pretty crazy. And, uh, and she says, this person knows something about that. I said, about temperature? No. She says, I don't know. He's, he's into that stuff. I said, okay. So <clears throat> we get in contact with Gary. So I talk to him about it. I end up uh, sending him some pages. And I says, you know, work on it. We read that. He's going to work on it, debunk it. I wanted to debunk it. I, I mean, I didn't care how, uh, what the results were. You know, at all they can just say it's uh i don't know madness i don't know whatever and uh that's what gary did i like gary talk about that uh but that was that was the beginning of it uh yeah, yeah maybe gary jump in and, and talk about how you get involved here and and what did you think when you first saw this have you had you had you seen this kind of stuff before in terms of uh people getting messages or were you just interested in 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 what it was showing well, anyone would be interested, wouldn't they, if they were sent seven sets of coordinates, yeah? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try and give you my feelings on this, you know, exactly how I, when I received the coordinates. Well, first of all, I received a, an email from Jim, and he was saying, could you make it to the, um, the conference that was being held in Woodbridge, you know, for the, uh, was it for the 30th year? Was it 30, 30th anniversary? Yeah, that was, that was it, yeah. And you, you, that's what you sent me first of all. And I said, I don't know whether I'll be able to make it because it's near Christmas and I might be visiting relatives, you know. So I, I put that off kind of thing. I said, well, you know. And then you said to me, look, I've got coordinates here, you know, seven sets of coordinates um, from this binary code. And I thought, well, what's the binary code? Funny thing is, is that I remember the newspaper, you know, the News of the World when it first came out in the News of the World in 1983. and um, I remember reading that then, and I thought, that's a very interesting case, and I kind of followed it through the years. And I remember the week before you got in touch with me, you, you were being portrayed by an actor in a documentary on the TV, and I thought, that's an interesting guy. I'd like to talk to him. And then you got in touch with me out of the blue when you sent that email. So, <laughs> and what I wanted to say is, is that I met Nick Pope by chance, right, in 1997 in a local pub of mine which was on the River Wandle uh, at this craft market, um, Merton Abbey Mills. And this pub was the William Morris on the river. And he walked in one night and I, I thought, I know that guy, the UFO magazine. Because I had my own experiences and I was reading these UFO magazines because I was doing research on my own experiences. So when I saw him, I thought, hey, he's walked into my reality. You know, it's, got, it's, you know, it's like a synchronicity kind of thing. I need to go over and talk to him. So I introduced to myself to him. And I didn't know that in 1997, he was actually researching the Rendlesham incident. And you never knew, did you, Jim? You never knew that I'd met Nick before. No, I didn't. And, I and I've met up with Nick a couple of times in that pub to talk about my experiences, but it kind of, kind of petered out and we went our separate ways because I don't think you realise what the experience was I was talking about. So I'm just letting you know the lead up to my work on the code. And I think this is all important because 
you know, there's been people I've met through the years that have been indirectly or directly involved in the Reynoldsham incident and the code. Um, and so, and, and also, you know, um, Jack Safadi, the physicist, is another one that I got in touch with in 1999. But anyway, you didn't know at the time that I'd met Nick Pope. And when you sent me that email, and I think I did tell you, I think, well, I, I, I met with Nick Pope, you know, years ago. And I didn't know then he was researching the Reynoldsham incident and he was interviewing you, you know? Um, and then you mm-hmm. get in touch with me. And I thought that maybe Nick Pope might have asked you to get in touch with me, but it wasn't it was because it's mutual friend. Well, so anyway. Yeah, um, yeah that's not the mutual you. friend. You're right. Nick wasn't the mutual friend. No, <laughs> yeah. it was somebody so, else. So in your, the title of your email, one of your emails, I mean, it might be the second or third, you said 23, you put the title 23. Yes. Hello? Hi. Uh, Everybody needs to mute. Muted up, a disturbance. Okay. okay. I'll carry on. Yep, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, um, the title of Jim's email was 23.5 degrees. And I asked him, I said, why did you put that in your title? He said, because I had a dream about 23.5. And, um, you know, I was, you was mentioned in that, you know, that you work on this or you've been doing research on this number. And he said, I thought it had something to do with the temperature on the planet. I said, no, 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 it's the, it's the Earth's obliquity angle. It's, it's tilted at 23.5 degrees in respect to the ecliptic plane of the sun. You know, it's all bit around the sun. And um, even though... It's 23.43 degrees now, and it's slowly decreasing. 23.5 degrees is what they use in most textbooks. You know, it's a kind of all-round figure. So uh, I said, no, it's about, about the axis, about the Earth's axis. And he said, I don't know why I've been having dreams about that then. And I said, well, that's my research. I've been working on that because I've been finding all these references to the angle, 23.5 degrees, and all these old paintings, from mostly from the 17th century. Now, but I won't go into all that right now, but... It's, it did happen to come up in the code from, from the additional information I was able to decipher from the coordinates in the code. But anyway, after that, after that email, Jim sent me these, the remaining six sets of coordinates. The first set of coordinates was um, announced to the public on the Ancient Aliens episode, which was High Brazil, where it's the location of High Brazil, which is, you know, submerged. It's an island that's submerged under the sea off the west coast of Ireland. And that was given in the Ancient Aliens episode uh, with a decipherment of the first five pages of the code. Um, so Jim sent me the remaining six sets of coordinates that were deciphered by Joe Luciano. And when he sent them to me, I was... <laughs> and this was, on, this was on Ground Dogs Day. <laughs> this was on February the 2nd when he sent me to him. It happened to be my son's birthday. But I realized, I realized there was a kind of connection with the high Brazil because um, the kings of Ireland, you know, the, the um, Tuatadanan, uh, uh, who were the fairy folk of high Brazil, that, were, that date, the 2nd of February, was um, associated with their queen. So there's a kind of connection there with high Brazil, you know. Anyway, I, I found all that out later. But anyway, he sent me those six sets of coordinates and I... It was just really dramatic watching the cursor move to all these ancient sites around the globe using Google Earth Pro. And um, they were mostly sites that had pyramids or like a sacred mount, you know, like at Taishan in China, 
And uh, there's the Nazca coordinates. One of them is Nazca. And the Nazca coordinates that were found in the code are actually inside a petroglyph of a triangle, you know, that you could sort of see as, the, as kind of like a connection to the Great Pyramid of Giza, which when Manu saves the day and I was working on this, because he was the one who found the triangle around the Nazca coordinates, we, um, he, he, dis he discovered a, something about it that made a connection with Giza. So all these sites, all these ancient sites had some, some kind of connection with ancient pyramids. Um, we don't know about High Brazil because that's under the sea, but um, yeah, all these sites had a kind of connection. Anyway, I wanted to see all these uh, coordinates all together on a flat map projection of the Earth instead of Google Earth, you know? Because Google Earth, you only see a couple of them and you have to turn around, you know, turn the globe. And I wanted to see them all together on a map projection of the Earth. And then I, I thought, well, I'll do what I usually do, which is the way I approach my research on the 23.5 degree stuff. Started measuring the angles between the coordinates on this flat map projection of the Earth, what you'd find in Google Maps at that time. And I found that the angle connecting Nazca to Giza was 23.5. <laughs> and the angle from Giza to, to Caracol, which is Belize, like the uh, Karna Pyramid in Belize in Caracol, was 23.5 degrees as well. But it was kind of perpendicular to the other angle, you know, like a 90 degree perpendicular. And uh, I thought, <sighs> Jim's yanking my chain here. Because <laughs> I've already been working on this. And I thought, you know, I wonder, you know, I wonder what this is all about. So, and then I found a 51 degree angle, which is the, which you would recognize as being the side angle, the Great Pyramid from Nazca to High Brazil or High Brazil. Mm -hmm. And then I realized what these coordinates were doing when they were drawing up a two dimensional image, like a triangle image of the Great Pyramid of Giza aligned to the Greenwich Meridian and the equator, you know, with its internal chambers as well. It's pointing to its internal chambers that we know of and it's pointing to a third one. So I thought that was quite cool, you know, and I, I had a word with my co-author at the time, uh, Scott Crichton, and he said, oh, don't touch it. I said, <laughs> it's all so then I, I said, I thought to myself, no, because the way all this was coming together, it was kind of complicated, you know, I don't think Jim would have the patience to actually sit down and work all this out. <laughs> you know, a lot of people were saying that he must have hoaxed the code. And it was just, no, that was, and as time went on, and I've been working on this now for 12 years, I've now come to the conclusion that no, he never hoaxed it. He couldn't have done. He just hasn't got the patience to sit down and do this stuff. And the other thing is he hasn't lived and breathed this stuff like I have, you know, and the things yeah. I already knew, the things I was already researching, I, I think prepared me for my work on the code. And there's stuff that Jim would have known about, you know, especially about Giza, because Giza is a very special part of the code. It's a very key location for the code because it's what's what is telling us about Giza, what has been built at Giza, the things that have been encoded at Giza, the mathematical properties of Giza. It's as if it's giving us those secrets now. The code is uncovering all this for us about the Giza plateau and the monuments there. And um, and as I was saying before we came on, Grant, that um, 
I had to wait until 2018 until I had the last part I would have needed. What, what I'm talking about is I needed all the tools, calculators, online calculators, all reliable and accurate data, especially mapping data of Giza, which only became available in 2018 for me to decipher the code properly. So we're talking about a code that originated in 1980, and I, would act, and I had to wait until 2018 until I had all the tools I need, all the programs I need to be able to decipher it. And that in itself is, a phenomen is phenomenal. You know, so it's a, a time sensitive, it's a, it's a temporal anomaly. The code is a temporal anomaly. It's telling us things that only come up later in the future, or you have to use these programs that would need, you'd need in the future to be able to decipher it. Yeah. So, yeah, they're, yeah. they're like they're making you work it out, and I think and maybe Jim can comment on this. What you guys thought as it sort of unraveled? Because I'm I'm sure that Jim was going like, "What are you talking about?" Like it's just hey, guess more. You remember we got I brought got you in with with Jimmy Blanchett, who started the same sort of thing with the angles and and how everything seemed to link. But you had to go through all this work to get to it. It's not like they they give you land on the White House lawn and give you a speech and tell you what's going on. Right. They make you work right. for years and years and years to figure this thing out. Yeah. It's uh before before Jim says oh I want to talk you know the, there's the book by the way yeah. there, there's the large symbol that Jim touched and he had to download a binary you know and yeah it's a big book and I want to thank Jim for you know mentioning my work on this research I put into it I mean it did take four to five years more books coming there's yeah I'm working on them now as I said I think the last time we spoke Grant yeah I did say that I've got another book two books that I'm working on in tandem. And I hope to get the second book out this year. Uh, in fact, no, that's got to come out this year, and then a third book maybe next year. I want that all has to do with this, with this, uh, what you learned. The findings this. of the code. There's so much yeah. information that was encapsulated in just those seven sets of coordinates. Exactly. That yeah. it, it's enough material there to fill three books. Yeah, it just uh, gets what, more you complex know, as you move along, right? Yeah, and it's very difficult for me to try to explain the findings yeah. of the code and describe what I found. It, you really have to follow up on what I've done myself to actually really, really appreciate the mathematics of it. It's meticulous mathematics. And um, you, you mentioned Jimmy Blanchett. I've been working with him and he's, he's found things in the Rendlesham code himself, you know, so, which is very important, you know, because he's an independent researcher. He's also looking at and he's finding things with the code. Um, and what I want to say is, is that the, Jewel in the crown for me, which is what I say is the jewel in the crown of message authentication, is this fine structure constant number. Okay. And of course, fine structure, the fine structure constant, you don't really have to know about what the fine structure constant is, but it's the, um, it's the nuclear forces of, of, elect of electron, you know, proton. It's the, it's the ratio of the square the charge of an electron divided by Planck's constant and speed of light. But you don't need to know that. All you need to know is the 12 digit number that the physicists have determined in 2018. And then you find that the code uses the Giza plateau and a special latitude running through Giza that generates that 12 digit number that came up in 2018. <laughs> and there's no way, there's no way anyone could have known that or predicted it. To me, that proves, it, well, it's the way the code authenticates itself. It's, that's the way it does that, it authenticates itself. All the other stuff that's come out of the code, all the other information that's emer that emerges from it, 
it needed to it needed to provide proof of its you know it, it needed to authenticate itself first before you could take all the other stuff seriously so that's how it authenticates itself but if that if it's proven itself that way then it's also proven that something um something extraordinary and that rendition that something paranormal and that rendition which was and who was it who's, we were talking the other day um Rob Neyland, a friend of mine, Rob Neyland, who's also a friend of mine who saves the day. He said, this is an extra temporal event, not an extra terrestrial event. It's more of an extra temporal event. This, you know, the code, the way it authenticates itself, it's a time anomaly. So whoever, whoever devised the code, all I can say is, and I can't say it's extraterrestrial, all I can say is it's an advanced intelligence that is not confined to the laws of our temporal or spatial reality. That's all I can say about it. Yeah. And the synchronicities of you two guys joining up, do you think that was part of it? In terms of- Yeah, I do. Know yeah, I do. You're part of this, you got dragged in by them or whoever they are. Manu Safe today, Jimmy Blanchett, um, Rob Nealon now, another guy who's <laughs> been working with Manu at Giza. But it's like what comes out of the code it also kind of relates to their work as well, their research work. What is pointing to the Sphinx and it's pointing to the pyramid of, of, of the pyramid of Unas at Saqqara, which Manu's been working on with the pyramid text with Rob Neeland. And, and uh, what I'm saying is, is that the code from 1980 is predicting all these things in the future. It, it seems like right now, what has emerged from the code has meaning with what's going on right now. At Giza with the Sphinx, um, the, the, where it's pointing to the Azores in the Atlantic, that's just one theme, you know. And as as you know, the Azores has always been like, you know, uh, a contender for the, the the original site of Atlantis, you know. So there's this connection with the Sphinx and the Azores, and it's all connected by the code that's come out of the code. So it's just phenomenal. It's just yeah. phenomenal. It is. Jim, do you, do you, um, you talked to maybe sort of elaborate a little bit on, you got some briefings, you, there was some stuff where they were sort of messing around with people. Do you, what do you think they knew when this happened? When, when like intelligence, whoever it was, did they realize the significance of this right from the word go, that this was something where they had to separate people and, you know, talk to people and, and do this kind of stuff? What do you think they knew? Because now we know well, it's a story, but well, apparently so. Because uh, when I went to the, you know, the, the after I retired from the Air Force, and I went out and um, uh, I was having difficulty uh, sleeping at night. I was only getting two and a half, maybe three hours sleep a night. So you know what that can do to you? It's terrible, and uh, especially long term. So I went to my medical doctor, and she said I can give you drugs for that. And I said I don't want drugs. I said the job I have. You know, I I can't have I got I got I can't be impaired. And uh, she said, "Well, would you consider going to a psychiatrist?" I said, "Yeah, anything, so I can sleep at night." And uh, sure enough, I went there like uh, for about a month, I don't know, once a week. And then uh, the psychiatrist, she said, "You know, I'd like to try uh, uh, hypnosis on you." There's something in your past that is really disturbing. 
for you. And I said, okay, okay, okay. And I got a little worried. I was thinking, oh, geez, I hope I wasn't abused as a kid or something. You know, I was thinking that kind of stuff. <laughs> and uh, yeah, really, it was just like wild stuff. And um, anyway, uh, at the time, she kept notes. Her notes was an eight millimeter, super eight. That That's how she took the notes. And so, so she filmed it. And so the first session, uh, I'll tell you the truth, I came out of it and uh, man, I felt great. I mean, I felt relaxed, I felt refreshed. I thought it was great. But then I looked over at the doctor and she's got her jaw on the table. And I said, what's the matter? And she goes, we're gonna have to have another session. And I said, what for? And she said, we're gonna have to talk about Woodbridge. I went, oh. And anyway, during the course of this stuff, we did do the second one too, but uh, during the course of this, there was a block put in uh, for, I would jump from the craft, the OSI, back to the craft. Why down the OSI building? It didn't make no sense. And it turns out she did break through the, the, uh, uh, the block that was put in. And the only thing they blocked was the binary code. That was it. Nothing else. Wow. It was the binary code. And the thing is, like I told Gary and, and other people, uh, the Achilles heel for, for the government is they never knew I had a notebook and I wrote it down. That's the Achilles heel. But they knew yeah, you could just code. They knew you had gotten a code, right? Is that right? Yeah, yeah could I just yeah, but based on based on the uh, hypnosis, why would they okay. put a block in for the code if they didn't know it? But they that's why I said yes, they knew about the code. Mm -hmm. That's something I noticed was, was was good is that you had you took notes all the time. You had notebooks all the time. You were recording stuff as part of your job. Yeah, Grant, I am a note-taking fool. Yeah. <laughs> when I was in the Air Force, I kept daily journals for full 20 years plus. And I was at Bentwater at the Bentwater's Woodbridge from uh, you know July of 1980 to August of uh, 84. And I kept notes every day, whatever happened at work, I have it recorded. And that stuff also helped in writing the rentals from McNingo. You know, because you look and I look at one of my journals and I go, oh, I'm meeting with, uh, you know, uh, the base commander or the wing commander or something. I go, oh, yeah, I remember that. It rec I would rec recall it. That's why that book is so accurate. And, and what, what did they do? How did they do the block? Because there's all these stories about the drugging and all this kind of stuff. What, what do you recall as to what they were doing? And how many times did you get briefed? And were you actually moved? Were you separated from the other people in the event? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything's always individual. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, in, in the, uh, I'll tell you what, the uh, doctor, she gave me her, uh, this would never happen today. She gave me her notes, the two tapes that she took of those hypnosis, I have them. And so in there, it shows me receiving, uh, you know, a drug in injection and, the, you know, that there was in there. Uh, so it, it, that's all shows in there. And also that also created a lot of the direct dialogue that was between me and another patrolman or something like that, because it was very detailed. and. Uh, uh, they they did do that. I'll tell you, uh, I, they didn't just do it to me. I mean, I mean, if you get enough different stories coming out, then all of a sudden it's uh, manageable uh, for the uh, uh, intelligence service. It's manageable for them to have 
different stories out there and for containment. And I'll tell you what, it was uh, me and another guy, Bistenza. Uh, we, had, we were over by law enforcement desk about a week later, and we run in the boroughs. And uh, I, he's all panicking. I said, what's wrong? He said, I got to go down to the OSI building. I said, well, okay. I said, you go down there, you tell him everything. Tell him everything. Don't hold nothing back. Okay. He says, he said, I will. He said, I said, if you tell him everything, it'll go away. I actually believed that. <laughs> I actually believed it was going to go away. That's what they said. They said it was going to go away. And uh, he said, okay. So, uh, and I put that in the book too, because uh, uh, he went from uh, knowing everything I did when we were getting debriefed at the base the wing commander's office to not, he can't remember anything. So, so his, his block is just, yeah, this whole thing's taken out, I guess. Can uh, I answer? So, yeah. Yeah, jump on in, Gary. Yeah, I just need to jet to this point because um, Jim gave me the, um, the video of the hypnosis session and I transcribed it all, yeah. transcribed everything. And um, Jim hadn't really seen it because he didn't want to watch it because he, he you know, he, he had uh, trauma from it all. So he could only. I, try, I tried a thousand times, didn't I, Gary? I, yeah. I'd watch a 30 seconds of it. I couldn't watch anymore. I mean, I tried a thousand times, couldn't do it. So I just gave him, gave him to you. you yes, yeah, so I, tran I transcribed it. And then I got Jim on, on um, Skype and I, I read it all out to him. What they did was they put a block on his memory of the actual point where he touches the glyph and he has a download download a binary code which he calls symbols in his mind symbols and ones and zeros and um you see that they put a block on that and the next thing he knows is john burroughs getting up behind him yeah and then the craft moving back and going to take off so all that part where he's actually having to download a binary code they blocked it and they blocked it with a nursery rhyme mary had a little lamb so every time Jim tried to remember that part of the incident of his, you know, encounter with the craft, he would hear somebody, a male, reciting this nursery rhyme. <laughs> and he couldn't get through the block. And it was the hypnotist who removed that block, you see. And it all came out with what I was able to transcribe from the, from the video. And I told Jim and he was, wow, you know, because... He wouldn't ever no, want to. I did say that. I did say that, didn't I? <laughs> no, you was, actually, oh you was actually really emotionally um, uh, yeah. affected by it, wasn't you, when we were talking about it? When I was, Yeah, it, it bothers it, me right now it, you're talking about it. And there was all these, like, points made during the hypnosis session where he's talking about boroughs and his, his feelings about what he was actually experiencing at the time. And it was all there in the hypnosis. And so we thought we'd put a chapter in the book about the hypnosis alone, you know. And uh, that is really, uh, a lot of people who read the book say that's really fascinating, that part, you know. Because it's like something out of MK Ultra. <laughs> well, that's what makes me wonder. They must have known right from the word go that this was not just any UFO sighting. They must have realized this was something significant. And yeah. that's why all these people, and, and maybe you can comment on the other thing that partly interests me most in the book, was when you get confronted by Kit Green, who is formerly the head of the weird yeah. desk at the CIA, and he wants your DNA and he wants to do an MRI. 
on you and uh, he comes yeah. to see you and he offers you full disability, the whole thing, as if they know something and you're this key yeah. guy and you didn't buckle. You, 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 Burroughs went for it, but you didn't go for it. Maybe a lot of yeah, I tell you, Grant. Uh, yeah, we talked about this. I think that was the four, within that four hours we talked yeah. about in November. <laughs> I tell you, um, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Burroughs had met Green out and Green and all oh, that guy is on TV all now. Now, I guess uh, the uh, Gary, what's his name? The, the, the scientist from Los Angeles. Or Nolan. Or, uh, Gary Nolan. Oh, I know. Nolan. You're talking about Gary Nolan. Gary Nolan. Yeah. 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 So he met with him and. And my our attorney was with him, and this is out in Arizona. I wasn't there, and I'm going by what the attorney told me. And uh, he says, "Yeah," he says, uh, "I left the room, and you know, John, you know, he come back in, he had his shirt off, was ready to give blood and everything." Else. He says, "Whoa, time out!" <laughs> he goes, "But Nolan, he goes, time out, no way." He stopped it there. So they wanted, uh, according to Green. They wanted, they were doing the research because of uh, the closest that, you know, we were at the craft. And apparently there's 50 other people, and uh, that's his terms, I'm using his, what he's told me, and uh, that they've been researching and apparently there's some way for it to block stuff and, uh, you know, if the farther out you are, you're more, if you're, if you believe in fairies, you're going to see a fairy. If you believe in aliens, you're going to see an alien. I mean, this is the kind of stuff, you know, that, but the closer you get, uh, uh, it will uh, it will be less intense, which won't, doesn't make sense what he's saying because you think you're closer to an object, it'll be stronger, you know. And he says, and you, he says, we think that when you talk about the uh, bubble, the sphere of influence, that 15 feet in there, around the craft, once you got in there, time distortion was going on. He says, and everything else, but you were seeing the craft for what it was. He says, there was no uh, projection coming out, no cloaking, nothing like that. You've seen it for what it was. And he says, that's what we want to go ahead and investigate. And so he wanted to set up a meeting. And I, it's in the Rockford Collectium chapter of the book. And he wanted to set up a meeting in Rockford, in Rockville, Illinois, is what we agreed on, not, not far from where I live. And I said, well, I'm not going to see him alone. I said, I want my attorney to. <laughs> and so, the, <laughs> well, you know, we ever hear of XCIA? Come on, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, and so, uh, uh, Pat, my attorney from uh, Jackson, Mississippi, he flew up. They they pay, he paid for it. He paid for his trip up there and all that. And it was a two day uh, meeting. Uh, and we sat down with him, and he. That's what he's telling me all this stuff about. He believes that, well, well this is a, a lot of stuff there. He said that uh, he believed that um, this, this phenomena, he called it. Uh, I said, the craft? He goes, yes. He goes, we believe it leaves a signature in your mind, in your brain, that you can find out from an MRI. What kind of signature? He says, yeah, you know, I mean, I was like, what the hell is he talking about? And he said, a signature that, you know, that only uh, close contact will, will record. He says, it's been in other cases. And I says, well, why don't you get a hold of them? He said, well, they're no longer alive. I'm like, whoa, that's, that's <laughs> not good, you know. I mean, really, he said, they're all dead except for me and Burroughs. 
And I went, oh, well, this is the story he told anyway. So he wanted me to get an MRI and uh, he says, I want to have your DNA 30 checked with that Nolan at, uh, at Stanford. Stanford. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, I don't know. I was really hesitant. He says, hey, he says, we'll give you full-time disability. He says, for the VA. I went, what? I says, I don't, I don't need VA disability. What the hell? You know, there's people out there that actually need it, you know, missing limbs and brain injuries and all that stuff. And I said, I'll think about it. I never got back to them. I'm just, there's just no way I was going to do that. The first of all, it's fraud. And second, it's dishonest. And there's nothing free in the world, Grant. If he's saying he wants to do something for me, guess what? It's not free. There's going to be payback of some kind coming down the road. And that would actually mean you're bought and paid for, you know, at that point in time. And I think that's how they uh, talk. And I'll tell you what, I did talk to one of the other uh, uh, people that uh, he was, uh, Green was on uh, back in 69 that I talked to Jack Safari about it. I talked to Putnam, Putnam is it? Put, put, put to him. Yeah, that's it. And I, I talked to them I, you know, uh, of the internet and um, they're saying, you know, you probably want to stay away from Green. You know? oh, wow. yeah. yeah, that's exactly what Putnam was. That's what he said. Wow. He says he's uh, he's different, and he left it like that. I, so I I think that uh, the, the indication I got that maybe he wasn't a former CIA, maybe he's still on payroll. You know, I mean, why have this meeting uh, all these years later and want to talk about this stuff now? You know, he he didn't try to buy me though. Because there's rumors about all sorts of people they wanted their DNA, like Whitley and uh, Chris Bledsoe. And there was all these stories that they were, that they had this D. Uh, I think he told you there was eight guys working on it, right? There was eight guys working for the That's right. You asked him, are you working for the yeah. government? Are you a contract? You confronted yeah. him, right? Yeah, yeah he, he said he's a contract. Yeah, I ate him. Yeah, they ate him. They're working, uh, and they work for Bigelow Industries. That's what he said. Yeah, and they're doing this injury. That's what makes me wonder, yeah. like, like, how much they really know. Because I, I heard the story. Burroughs tells the story that that Kit Green came and told him to do a certain type of yoga and a certain type of meditation. And I said, "Did you do it?" And he said, "Yeah." And he said, "Did it make it better?" And he went, "Yeah." And it's like, and I said, "Well, where do they get this stuff from?" It's almost like they're they they're 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 working behind the scenes. That's why I always wondered about the Rendlesham that they seem to know right from the word go that this was a big time case. This is not just a UFO sighting. And and like the Germany guys came in, is that true that where they come in and get the, the, the stuff where they fly in from Germany and, and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like everybody descended on the base to try to shut this yeah, thing down. And, yeah, and one of the things that was confirmed about that, I mean, yeah, we did, they, they did fly a four-star general flew in. I mean, he's got better things to do than do errands, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, anyway, so, um, uh, when uh, Colonel Highbush took over, it's just another chapter in, in the book. Uh, he's my lifeline. He's my safety line. He's he. The Air Force gave me him. He took. He replaced uh, Major Zickler as a squadron commander. Get this: a full colonel replaced a squadron commander. That's a major. Wow. What what what's the purpose behind that, right? And I'm there like two days. Uh, he's there like two days uh, after Zickler leaves that, 
and I get a call, and I'm working in uh, plans and programs for the squadron, uh, writing defense plans, stuff like that. And uh, that's where they moved me. I just seen Watchmen there. there. And uh, anyway, I get a call from them, and the new the squadron commander, uh, Colonel Highbush, wants to see me. So I'm thinking he wants a briefing on like 4102, some defense plan, this, that, the other, you know. So I go on down there, man. He shuts the door. He says, he says, hey, you want a cup of coffee? I'm like, what? <laughs> and he gets a cup of coffee. And he says, I'm Chuck Highbush. I go, okay, sir. He says, I'm, he says, I was working at the Pentagon before I came here. He says, I worked for security police intelligence. He says, I read your statement. The key thing about that was, is that one, the four page statement I wrote that hasn't been made public, he, he said he read it. And that means it went to the Pentagon. Uh, and the uh, other thing, he said that uh, he, uh, and there's, you know, he says, I'm here. He says, and he says I'm going to be your lifeline. Anytime you have problems, issues, or anything like that with this incident, I want you to come back to me. So I did that for the next 10 years. Okay. Uh, we went to different assignments. He got promoted to Chief of Security Police Europe. And still, we would still, he'd show up at the base, we'd talk. I show up at the headquarters and go talk to him. We'd, you know, do a cup of coffee and he asked how things going. And so our contact remained like that. And so the Air Force never left us high and dry. They took care of us. At least they took care of me. Okay. Did, did, yeah. did, the phenomena... did I answer did I answer your question, Grant? I get going yeah. sometimes. I... Yeah, I, I just it's always this I always trying to figure out like what, what's going on behind the scenes and like did this thing follow you? Like did did are you still is it still part of your life? Because you hear like with experiencers that you know stuff keeps going on. I know Gary's came in and, and there's a new chapter being written there that sort of elaborates what what, what you started. But in terms of uh, whether the military is still interested in you or whether you yourself still have experiences where the phenomena is still interacting with you. Okay, I have, I still have bad dreams. I still have that. So Rennesham happened two nights ago. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books and my facebook sites are in the show notes if you love the podcast or learn something valuable we'd love for you to subscribe rate or give a review on today's episode if you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future please let us know until next time watch this space and thank you so much for listening